Amen. Hallelujah. Let us have a word of prayer before we proceed. Father God, I thank you for being Lord over my life as well as Lord over my brothers and sisters' life who I join with this beautiful day. Thank you, Lord God, and we just ask and pray that your will shall be done. God, let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth and the actions of my limbs be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. You are truly my redeemer, and I thank you for that now, that you be pleased. Amen. Amen. Well, Twin Cities Church, um, it's, it's an honor to be here before you guys, and um, I'll start off by saying, you know, I just under a decade ago, I started on a journey to where as uh, the Lord of hosts arrested me while I was in ministry, I was a part of a mega church, and and um, he had started revealing to me this thing, this message that he wanted me to start giving to the church. And um, and I'm like, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this? I said, um, you know, I'm definitely alone in this message that you give me. I don't know if people will understand that, uh, that what you have started revealing to me in your scriptures and your word about the church and how we should start interaction and engaging. Because though we read and we preach from the scriptures, at the same time, we simultaneously reject the scripture's way of doing things corporately. And so with that said, I'm like, well, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do. And I truly feel that the Lord told me, he said, you know what? He said, just obey what I tell you and go. He said, and on this journey, he said, you will come across people that I've strategically already given kind of the same things to, and I just need you to go. And I'm happy to stand here today in uh, the Twin Cities to say that my brother George is one of those people that 10 years ago, God told me, you will come in contact with people that I've given the same thing to. And so I honor him today for not only uh, carrying uh, that and also another unique group of people that I met in Arkansas, uh, just outside of Little Rock, Arkansas last month, but uh, God is good and he's true to his word. And just so, I just want to say that because it's so refreshing uh, being around people like that because as you probably could imagine, it's been a lonely road over the last past decade. But because of that, I do thank God and I honor uh, George today and as well as this beautiful group of people that I was able to fellowship with on last night uh, because uh, it indeed is a blessing. It is a two-way blessing. I've definitely been blessed since I've been here. So thank you again so much for having me. And uh, I'll try to make sure the next time I come up uh, from, North, from Greensboro, North Carolina, that I bring a little more heat with me <laughs> and sweet tea. <laughs> so... Um, but as we get into it, I'd also just, uh, just to encourage Twin Cities Church, who also is a house church ministry, just know that um, house church ministry isn't just a preference. And we'll all find this out later on. It's just not, well, this is the way that I choose to do church and, you know, there's other ways and forms of doing church that's okay. Uh, the future will reveal to us that house church ministry, um, Twin Cities Church, it is so much more important because it will also be the hub to house end-time Christianity when persecution arise, even in this nation. So understand that you're already a part of something that is very important, a unique dynamic in God and in the kingdom of God, and it will be used 
to house and to preserve. See, Christianity is going to go forth all the way, and we got that to be encouraged about. But know this, the method in which we have church now, when stuff really hits the fan and when Christ, true Christianity become illegal in this land, you all would be able to go on functioning because guess what? You won't have to change much because you will already know how to function what we call underground, like one of the biggest churches in the world have been doing for years now over in China. Amen. So I just want to encourage you all with that. It's just more than a preface. It will be a matter of safety, physically and spiritually, uh, as the time comes. So what are we here to talk about today? We're here to talk about, and those of y'all who I spent time with last night, uh, you already know the title of my message. It is Sweet Tea and George's Pizzas. <laughs> no, but what we're here to talk about, of course, we are in the Twin Cities. This is the place where um, America was seized by a narrative that had been going on in the George Floyd uh, happenings here where he was murdered just uh, a little bit from where I'm standing. So, you know, as an African-American male, it was very touching, and I'm honored to be here that George invited me because as he took me around the city and, and things like that of that nature, I really saw the spots, and a lot of stuff that I saw on the news I saw firsthand. So, again, thank you uh, so much for that. But we're here to talk because uh, there is, if you will, a couple of sides. Uh, we have the black side, and then we have the white side. Most importantly, we have the kingdom of God side. And so we want to talk about because what do we do with all these sides? How do we juggle, juggle this? Because, of course, indeed, there is responsibility uh, on both sides or on all sides that we need in order to truly go forth in a way that can show the glory of the Father here in the earth realm today. So uh, what we want to do is we just want to talk from um, these points, and I'm going to have some scriptures to bring up to you, and then we're going to get to your questions and answer here briefly. So we want to move right along because... As I am here in the percentage here, which is a lot different from Greensboro uh, to where we have 40-40 and then 20%. So it's a lot more, uh, should I say, even when it comes to uh, the racial number from where I'm from than it is here in the Twin Cities, understanding that, if I'm not mistaken, you all have a African-American population maybe of 12 so percent somewhere around there, which is kind of close to the actual um, country's percentage, if you will. So therefore, it is... I'm standing here in a place where there's not as many um, people who look like myself uh, represented. So what do we do? What do we say? And, and not only the Twin Cities Church, but also the Georgia. I thank God because you all have already exemplified being intentional in the things that have been going on. So I want to make that known. Not only you all know that already, but to everyone else who will be watching this presentation later on, we thank God also for that, for the Twin Cities. So first, one of the things that we want to do as far as I want to let you know that I'm definitely, as you can tell, an African-American male, and I'm very proud to be that. I would have it no other way that I am African-American uh, and I am a male, and I thank God for his creation and his wisdom. And so there's a lot of things that come with that, uh, uh, and, you know, so, but with all of that said, we have a responsibility. Everyone does. And in the wake of not only what has happened in George Floyd, and we can name plenty of other names way before George Floyd and even some after, uh, there is a responsibility uh, to my Caucasian brothers and sisters. And one of the things is, is to first off understand not only the situation, but being in majority culture, there are some things that just there will be a certain level of being naive to because you're removed from the experience. 
And so it's going to take more of an extra energy to make yourself aware and, and available uh, to not only sympathize but to react right because we as kingdom people know that we're always in obligation to act in a way that God wants us to act, not what society says. And so one of the first things that we have to do is acknowledge the injustice. There's levels to that. Acknowledge the injustice. Now, you know, there's no way around in the scripture, in the Bible that we say we read. When we go to places like Isaiah, the first chapter, let's go and read that for a moment for those of you all who have your Bibles. Isaiah, the first chapter. And in these times, this probably have been a more, should I say, um, famous scripture. Something that we probably hadn't heard of as of yet, but being in every in the wake of everything that's been going on. So I just want to deal with chapter one, verses 17. When we hear things like this, and I'm gonna read from the English Standard Version. It reads, Learn to do good, and then it says, seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. So we see that, we not only see that, but we also turn very quickly, we want to move to Proverbs chapter 31, and we also see some other passages of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 through 9, I want to read that as well, because there's an obligation that we all have, just not for uh, the black narrative, but for any narrative, wherever we are, we have a kingdom mandate to want justice. God's people, because of the Holy Spirit, should want things to be right. And so with that said, uh, let's look at uh, Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, and it reads, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And there are tons of verses of scriptures like this all throughout the Bible that lets us know Justice is not just something that we should overlook if it doesn't, quote-unquote, come to our front door. It is something that we as Christian people, it, it should be in our pores that we don't like it when we see another part of humanity treated in a negative light. So we thank God. God is a God of justice, and so we thank him for that. But if you pay close attention to Proverbs, that which I read to you, it says, open your mouth. Uh, I want to remind us that it's not always, you know, sometimes we can play it safe because we think, well, you know, um, I'm doing good by to the African-American community because, you know, hey, I'm pouring my money in here, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and, and you know, and I have actions that maybe no one else could see, but it is benefit beneficial to uh, the African-American community. I will say to you, thank you so much for that, and that, that indeed is a good job. But one of the things that the scriptures implies here, it says, open your mouth. See, there's another level of risk taken when you open your mouth because, you know, you, you, you can give monies and you can pour things in. But the moment you open your mouth to where someone else could see you verbalizing things, now there comes a point to where you open up, there'll be an opportunity to where there can be friction. See, when you get to the level of opening your mouth, you come across a place to where it might not be as safe as it used to be because you can offend some people 
when you open your mouth. Isn't it strategic or isn't it not strange that now in not only America, but definitely parts of the world, when you look at it on your job and your school system, you can talk about any and everything, but don't open up your mouth about Jesus or the kingdom or that Christian stuff. See, see, you can believe Jesus, but when you open up your mouth about Jesus to others, now we have an issue. And so it's a different fragrance when you not only just do good deeds uh, for people that are not seen or when you pour monies in and when you do projects like this, that, and the third, but if you do all that and don't open up your mouth, there's still a way where you can avoid a certain level of being with your brothers and sisters that are in dying need. Hallelujah. It's one of the obligations that we should all have, uh, not only in this narrative, but others. But not only do we want to open our mouth, let's do whatever we can, being that um, African Americans are, what we say, 12% of, of the population, if you will, I think in America, if I'm not mistaken. If that be the case, now that takes a lot of energy more energy for those who are not black to, should I say, make yourself aware of the why behind the planes, behind the pains of black people. You know, if you're far removed from the experience, because, you know, we're dealing with, you know, you see in the news, a lot of people in other parts of the country will never come in contact with a black person because all they have to go on is what they see on TV. And of course, we do know media is not to be trusted. <laughs> if there's anything we know about the last couple of years and all throughout uh, this media age is media is not to be trusted. And it's amazing how now we trust media as if it is the gospel. And we read the Bible and treat it as though that's just a book of stories. You know, so we have to be careful. But making ourselves aware, understanding those who have been victimized. And in this case, we're talking about black people in this country. Why do we need to do that? Because it is not until we make ourselves aware of the why. We see the what, and that's in anything. You know, a lot of times we are really, we are fruit focused. You know, we, we are react to the what. But a lot of times we would never react right to the what until we understand the why behind the what. Very important. Because it is in the why that now we start understanding certain reactions of the victim, whether they are good or bad, right or wrong, healthy or unhealthy. And of course, I'll be the first to tell you, as being proud as an African-American male and um, loving on the people that look like me and that even don't look like me, I also understand this, part of understanding those who have been victimized you don't just understand the why. It does help you to understand why we do what we do, how we think and what we think, but you also understand the victim in another light. Because I'll be honest, when you're dealing with African Americans as a whole, we are a proud people at times. But if you're not also aware and understand that, of course, we are gifted people. This nation's history, real history, would tell you that, oh, it's very appreciative of African-Americans being in America. It was very appreciative for what we helped build and how, how they capitalized off us, even unwillingly, involuntarily. But 
we also understand that with the displaced people, there also come a displacement in mentality and identity as well. So my Caucasian brothers and sisters, it is good to understand that, yes, we as black people have been victimized. Yes, we as black people do need help. Yes, we as black people also need your voice. But if you understand that we as black people also have problems that most everybody else have, but to a higher degree because we have been displaced. Our fathers have been displaced on purpose from our homes. And so because of that, you're also dealing with African-American people who are more void of a corporate and individual identity. So how do I treat a victim who is more likely don't know who they are as a people? Because one of the things you'll find about black people that we're not all on one accord as black people. Because we have been misplaced and we really are still searching for who we are, we open ourselves up to ideologies that could stroke our ego as being black. And most of them don't come from scriptures and they are very unhealthy and demonic, I may add. So it's in understanding that if I'm going to help these who have been victimized and displaced on purpose, I also got to understand that even as a victim, there may be times where as I also have to deal with their insecurities. And so I have to be patient in that because, yes, we as a black people don't agree on a lot of things. And some would get offended if you say black. Some would get offended if you say African-American. Some would get offended if you say American. There's not too much that can't offend anybody nowadays. But what it's going to take is a patience, like the Bible says, a long suffering. You know, all those good fruits of the Holy Spirit, they're there to help people, to love people who are at times unlovable. And, of course, we know we don't just say that that is about African-Americans. That's just about New Age people in general nowadays. But being that the subject topic at hand of what we're talking about, we have an obligation. And it's going to take extra energy to make ourselves aware of not only what the victim is going through, how the victim has been victimized, but at what cost have it affected our mentality? Another one of the things that we want to make sure that we do, because when, when you help a victim out, you also have to present in ways that you are strategic, that you don't succumb to wanting them to try to prove that you're helping them out, because sometimes that can lure us into other things that I'm about to talk about. But one of the things that we want to do is we want to be balanced uh, my Caucasian brothers and sisters, in showing what we do support as much as we are showing dislike for what we don't support, guess what? In the fight for black America. Now, what do I mean by that? Understand that if you want to help us, also you have to pre present your help in a way that's not antagonizing us because... For example, we see things like Black Lives Matter, the organization, not the concept. It is demonic. As an African-American male, I would tell you, no Christian should lock arms with Black Lives Matter organization. 
which is different from the concept of Black Lives Matter. I would agree with that. Black Lives Matter, absolutely. Black Lives Matter, too. This is not something where we're coming and trying to make black lives more important. We're just trying to say that we are as important as everybody else. And, we, and sometimes, systematically, we haven't always been treated that way. So, of course, I get that being black. And it would be a great thing if we were treated as though everyone else has been, majority culture. But the reality is we haven't. But me being not only a black male that's standing before you, me being a Christian black male, anointed by the Holy Ghost. See, the Holy Spirit won't allow me to do anything or lock arms with anybody who stands against my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you've done your research, Black Lives Matter as an organization serves Satan himself. And they wrap it up in we are doing this to march for black people. Not understanding that most of their plight is anti-Christian. So I have to have a discipline enough heart to say, even if you're helping um, or attempting to help black people, or say you're helping black people, but you still are at arms with the devil, I can't count you as friendly forces. If my filter, my most dominating filter is the kingdom of God. But with that example of the Black Lives Matter, I, I, you know, as, 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 as my Caucasian brothers and sisters, you know, we would look at you a little different if we see you adamant about coming against things like Black Lives Matter organization, in which you should, and you're so vocal about everything that's not right about the movements and, 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 the, and the organizations or either the attempts to try to help make things right in our culture. If you're very adamant about the mistakes of those, but we never see you as equally adamant about the successes or being as equally supportive about the notions that are healthy, then we're going to look at you a little different. And, you know, of course, when you look on social media and things like that, I see some folks who are adamant about coming against Black Lives Matter, but when you stroll down their posts, you never see anything that they say in support of black people. So you got to understand, ask yourself the question, what would that look like to those who we are now deeming victims as in this narrative? What would that look like to them? If we see you adamant about the mistakes, but we don't see you adamant about the successes. It's an obligation that, and you know, everyone who does this don't even realize it. It's a part of my life too. You don't even realize it sometimes. So sometimes we do have to look in the mirror. But if we don't do that, understand what I'm telling you is that even if your heart is good, that presentation would put a gap in between you and those who you really want to help. So keep that in mind. Because one of the things that I say about not just black people, but all people who have been victimized, whether it be women, children, spouses, what have you. Here's one thing that I know about all victims, and it is this. Every victim, at a point in time after they've been victimized, are brought to a place where they have to choose between 
correction and over correction. That's one of the main points I wanted to drive home today. The difference between correction and overcorrection. By example, now, I'm, now I know I'm in uh, the Twin Cities and y'all get a lot more snow here, so y'all help me out. But don't y'all, aren't y'all are aware that, you know, sometimes if there's snowy conditions on the road, you know, sometimes they say it's not that you veer off the road that makes an accident, but it's when you snatch it back trying to correct or overcorrect that what happens? The car snatches way to the other way, and guess what? You adamantly cause the car to spin out of control, not because you try to correct, but because you overcorrect it. Yeah, you know, it's just like, you know, here's one thing that we understand about overcorrection. You know, we, know, we understand roads. On, on a road, on a highway, you got a line right here, and then you got a ditch. Then you got maybe a center line, and then you got another line over here, and then a ditch over there, right? So here's one thing about Overcorrection. Overcorrection and Satan himself don't care which side of the road you're off on. Because there's a ditch here, there's a ditch here. Satan glories no matter what ditch you end up in, just as long as you don't remain within the confines of the lines of the highway. And so that's what overcorrection does. Overcorrection start with a good point. It starts with a valid need. Hey, victimization says, listen, you have taken me off the road. And that's true, so you have a point. But here's the goal of overcorrection, and here's what makes overcorrection very dangerous. The goal of overcorrection is not to be correct. It's not even to be right. It's not even to be truthful. The goal of overcorrection is to separate so far from the thing that hurt them or victimized them in the first place. And even if that means going to the other side of the road in the other ditch, at least I'm not close to the thing that victimized me. There's a problem with overcorrection because overcorrection don't mean correction. We as Christians, we as godly people want to make things right. We don't want to make things wrong. And overcorrection is not a right. It is compounding the problem of what's already wrong. And so remember that the goal of those who overcorrect, because think about it, people who have been victimized, you know, you look at, look at, you know, and there's three things that we want to talk about, you know, when it comes to victims or three, three big things that even in our country and our nation that we have experienced when it comes to victimization. It is, you know, think about it. Uh, uh, women have been treated unjustly, unfairly. They have been undervalued by men. It has been men's fault. So feminism is one of the major overcorrections that we see in our modern day. Because it's not that... They didn't have a point initially. Women were abused. Women were mistreated. Women were undervalued. So you have a point that needs correction. But what happened over amount of time, the victims were lured into overcorrecting. 
the problem. So because men has done us wrong in the past, let's become men ourselves. Let's do what men are supposed to do. You know, God doesn't matter how many times we are victimized because no matter how much we are victimized, it never gives us an excuse to disobey this. So God wanted to correct the wrong that was done to women. He didn't want us to overcorrect because no matter how many mistakes men have made, he still made them head of households. He still want them to be the leaders of the wives. That doesn't change. But victimization would say it will lure you to do I correct or do I overcorrect? Because see, when men mess up, you don't replace the man. You restore him to his proper place. But feminism says women can do whatever men can do. And so therein lies one of the biggest issues in our modern day society. Now you have men and women bumping heads. Because guess what? The moment you make them just like each other, you rob them of the opportunity to value. Greater value comes with difference. I value my wife. Hey, baby, if you're watching, my wife of about to be 13 years and my little sweet daughter, Olivia, that's back in Greensboro, North Carolina. I value my wife because she does things differently from me. But the moment you try, want to try to make her do what I do, the value diminishes. Burger King don't value McDonald's or Hardee's or Wendy's because they do the same thing. So we got to understand that. But here's the thing about victimization, though. Not only feminism, we also see it uh, with the LGBT movement, overcorrection. You know, so what we allow for the LGBT, and here's the thing, I'm not saying that them as a movement have been done wrong because the very fragrance of the LGBT community is to offend God by telling him you messed up when you created me. You, you messed up when you created me to supposedly like the opposite sex. So we are not talking about that from that standpoint, but look at how what happens after people are considered or portrayed in the media to be victims. It gives us more of an opportunity, the world more of an opportunity to have an undisciplined heart towards their cause. Think about it. Not only feminism, not only uh, the LGBT. It, isn't it amazing that now, you know, if a, if a man beat on a, his wife, that's very bad, and it definitely is very bad, and it should be dealt with because it should never happen. But we don't look at it the same if a wife beats on a man. Why is that? Oh, because women have been victimized first and before. Why is it that when it comes to the LGBT movement, it will make media news headlines all over the world if, if somebody that was, quote, unquote, a part of that community was dealt or, dealt or handled in a way that we thought was unfair or not right. It'll be all over the news. But why is it we didn't hear about those little Christians that got kicked out of a coffee shop that was owned by a gay person? Simply because they wanted to come in and get coffee and they didn't do anything while they was in there. He just saw them passing out tracks about Jesus down the street. And he ordered them to leave 
his coffee shop simply because they were Christians. Oh, because the world and media tells us LGBT are some of the biggest victims now. And this is why also what's coupled with Black Lives Matter is they have made black people cause the mascot to get in now. So now we're just feeling sorry for the victims. And so when we feel sorry for the victims, now comes victim's theology. Victim's theology is very dangerous. Why is it very dangerous? Because not only do we have feminism, uh, not only do we have LGBT, but even now, right now we have what? Black people. Victim's theology. Yes, I am a black man, but, and the media arbitrating us as being victimized. And in some ways that we, in a lot of ways we have been. But it never gives us a right to overcorrect as black people. How do we overcorrect? When we say things like, if you're not black, you're not eligible to speak on black issues. Well, that's a lie, especially if you're filled with the Holy Ghost. You can speak on any issue. As a matter of fact, your Bible tells you only those who are Christians, who really have the Holy Spirit according to Romans chapter 8, can judge all things because you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, which enables you to have the mind of Christ. You know, another overcorrection with, 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 with the current day narrative is that, oh, uh, black people can't be racist. That's a lie. If you look up the technical term, it literally means a mindset of thinking superiority. And isn't it amazing now that right now with where we are, when we look at George Floyd and a lot of other things, that were unjust. It allows for the nation in many ways to be like, because they've been victimized, allow them to be wrong a little bit. So now, that, and that's the dangers of bitterness. If we don't deal with bitterness, and unforgiveness in our own hearts, it, can, it has the power to mutate us to being exactly like the perpetrator. So now we do have some African Americans are just as hateful towards other people that don't look like them as they have been treated in the times past. I don't care who you are, what color you are, what context you live in, if you don't deal with the root of bitterness and unforgiveness, you have within you, that bitterness to transform you to become just like your perpetrator or the one that victimized you in the first place. So keep that in mind. But here's one thing about victim's theology. I brought that up because we got to understand this. Here's what I say about victim's theology. I say victim's theology is this. It says this. Because I've been wronged, allow me to be wrong. And anyone who doesn't support me in being wrong overcorrection, I will equate their lack of support as them failing to acknowledge that I was a victim in the first place. That is what I call victim's theology, friends. And isn't it amazing? You know, the Bible talks about uh, this, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Guess what? That's all of our hearts. Outside of the Holy Spirit, we, we, we don't have what it takes to know. The Bible says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? 
The dangers about victimization and overcorrection and victim's theology is that whoever society deems as the victim, we grant them the permission to be wrong, to help one-up their people who treated them wrong in the first place. I am here to tell you that should never be in the house of God, the household of faith. We are here to correct things. We are here to right wrongs, not be wrong because I've been wrong. Victim's theology, it leads, it, it preys on the undisciplined heart, the deceitfully wicked heart. Here's one thing, and I've said it many times before if y'all follow my teaching. Here's the thing about deceitfully wickedness. Deceitfully wickedness is another level of wickedness because it is a wickedness that feels righteous. It wouldn't be deceitfully wicked if, you, if it was easily uh, um, discerned within ourselves. This, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And deceitfully wickedness is a wickedness that feels like it's right. So I feel like I'm right when I want to allow the victim to act whatever way they want to act and call it right. Because after all, they've been done wrong. Now, my Caucasian brothers and sisters, I understand you are, those of y'all who really want to be right, you are put at a place uh, that is very hard. You know, because we say if you don't fight the way we fight, if you don't let us be who we want to be because we have been victimized, then we're going to consider you a racist. My Christian white people, you are put at a, a, a very, very peculiar spot because those of you all who love Jesus and you love righteousness, you do have to stand sometimes and don't put the pacifier in the baby's mouth of the narrative. Yes, I love you. Yes, I want to see uh, my black brothers and sisters have justice. But I can't do that at the expense of allowing y'all to be wrong and me patting you on the back for it. I can't do that at the expense and be like, you have permission to be wrong because you've been wrong. Because now we're not operating in the kingdom of God. Here's one thing, here's one thing that, that's dangerous about victim's theology. It brings you to a place and those around it to fight simply to avoid negative labels that society attached to you. My brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you this is a very dangerous thing. Prime example, we live in a world now where we have constructed the term homophobic. I will submit to you, there is no such thing as the term. But that term was created a couple of few years ago. Why? Because to help the cause of the LGBT, they constructed the term homophobic, which simply seems to be something bad. And so they call everybody homophobic. They attach that negative label to anyone who disagrees with the lifestyle. And what does America do? We fight to avoid the negative label. And in doing so, we allow for overcorrection. We bring a pillow to an ungodly cause. Think about it. Most people do what they do now because they don't want to be considered what society calls negative. And so let me go out my way to prove I'm not that what you're calling me. I'm not this what you're calling me. I'm not homophobic. So let me do what I can and do too much extra stuff to just prove my love for people who are embracing things that God never liked. 
I'm not racist. And so because I'm not racist, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheer you on when you do disruptive things and when you tear up buildings. And now when I say that, of course, we do understand, and I'm going to end up with my message that black people are not just those who are telling, tearing down buildings. That's a little bit of everybody. So that's just not us. And then a lot of the peaceful protests would tell you that a lot of those got started by people who didn't look like us. Not all, but guess what? Every, there was a big rainbow in the mix of those who were looting buildings. So we can't just put that on one uh, group of people, either white or black. But never fight church to avoid negative labels of society because if you're going to be Christian, those negative labels are coming to you anyway. Let's look at Christ's example. Turn to me to Matthew chapter 27, verse uh, 11, real quick, if you will. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11 through 14. Let's see how Christ handled a negative label. He, he did it like this, uh, and real quick, real quickly, I'm going to just go ahead and read it. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus did what? To the negative labels that was attached to him in a wrong way. But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pay attention to what happened to the governor. The governor was impacted based on Jesus not even answering to the negative labels that society gave him. So sometimes it is a better witness to Jesus to not fight to prove to the world that you are not what they label you in a negative way. Church, don't be lured. I'm speaking to the church at whole. Do not be lured into fighting the way that the world wants you to fight. See, there's a kingdom way to fight, and sometimes America, sometimes media get Christians, try to make Christians think your way of fighting ain't effective or it's old-fashioned anymore. You're not even fighting effectively if you're not fighting the way we want you to fight or the way the news should tell you to fight or even the way black people should tell you to fight for our cause. Hmm. Here's how Christians should fight, and I know a lot of times we don't want to hear this because we also live in a new age. This mic we want everything quick, fast, and in a hurry. We want everything microwave. But here's how the church fight. One of the biggest ways the church fight, okay, I don't have a problem with you marching, of course, peacefully. If you want to be in the number to kind of help encourage African Americans and, and those who you don't look like, if you want to be in their marches, you know, that's fine and good if you're not tearing up any property and stuff like that. But here's a more powerful way to fight. Fight by being an example. Here's one thing we got to understand about the power of an example. An example leaves a mental impression for future execution. See, church, let's stop, let's never stop believing in the power of an example. But if you look at a lot of times in our execution, we would never say with our mouths, but our practices, our practices, our actions show that. We don't believe in the power of example as much as we should, as, as much as the Bible say that we should. Turn to me real quickly, too. I'm going to move through these fastly. I know we got time winding up, and we want to get to your questions. So John chapter 13, verses 5, uh, 5 through 8. I'm going to go ahead and just read these. Uh, we know the story very well. 
Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And, um, and he came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what am I going, uh, what, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share or no part with me. Those words are very important. Jesus, uh, and then he says, and when you move down to verse 12, 15, when he had washed their feet and put on their outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher. Pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, now you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and you are right in doing so. If then I be your Lord and teacher and I have washed your feet, you also ought to do the same thing to, your other, to other people that I have done to you. Jesus understood the power of an example. And he basically said, when you go back to those words and pay close attention, I can't really be considered your teacher if you, don't allow, if you only allow me to preach to you. I can only be considered your teacher, your, the one who disciples you, if, 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 if I not only speak to you and teach you, but I also exemplify before your eyes how I want you to execute in the future. We know 1 Peter, you don't have to turn there. There's a verse in 1 Peter that says 5. It says, do not lord over the heritage. It's talking to Christian leaders. Something you don't hear preached that much these days. Don't lord over my heritage, preachers, pastors. But what? Simply be an example to the flock. Church, never, never lose in your mind, the importance of setting an example, even if the example don't bring right now results. One of the problems with the church is we have way too many sermons with little pictures of examples to attach them to. This is why even in the traditional church, people come to church every Sunday for years and still don't know how to execute the Bible that they hear preached all the time. We have more word and more knowledge and little execution. Why? Because we have little examples set before us. Church, I would say to you, stop preaching racial reconciliation if you don't use more energy exemplifying racial reconciliation. Because, see, when you, see, here's the church's, this is what our fragrance should be. If we would have been doing what the early church was doing all along, the church would have all, the church being the salt of the earth, would have always given the world a mental picture of the solution that we are now currently facing. The problem, you know, this whole racial divide thing, you know, where, you, oh, people that don't look like us. Well, guess what? If the church was functioning like they should have, uh, and being intentional about, now I'm not talking about just being intentional about what we call multicultural churches, men, let everybody who come and sit and listen to the same preaching, you know, be a rainbow. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about they should see Christians in a, in, interacting and engaging with one another as family, a family of different colors. The world needs to see that more than they need to see anything now so we can combat the pictures of the news. So let's, let's do racial reconciliation more than we preach it. Because an example can, do you, can take you far greater than any sermon can. I would say with that, pursue relationships 
with people that look differently than you. See, my wife and I, we never let the news dictate to us how bad cops are, how bad white people are. Because you want to know why? All of our lives, we have shared times with people who don't look like us. We have close relationship all of our lives with people who don't look like us. So therefore, when the news tell me all black people are criminals, no black people have daddies, or all white people are racist, or all cops are out to kill black people, I can say that's not true because my experience with everybody who you are trying to demonize tells me. And therefore, I, because of my experience with people who don't look like me, I repel the example that the news and media is trying to give me. So go out your way to relate. And when I say to relate, I'm not talking about on your job. See, you, work can't count. Church and school can't count as you relating with someone who don't look like you. Take the time and visit them. Spend recreational time with people who don't look like you. And it could help solve the issue. And lastly, I'm going to close with this. If we really take a break from the media and be really discerning, we'll understand that it's really not a war between race. It's really a war between the difference of thought. See, it's really a war between what we call liberality and what the church calls righteous. There's a, there's a, there's a war on thought. If you don't think like me, you're my enemy. Think about it. The news even shows you pictures. There are black and white people on both sides of the argument. There are black and white people who are voting for Democrat or Republican. So it's really not about a race of war, like some people want to make it. It's a war of the difference of thought. So that leads me to my closing remarks. Church, the stage have been set. The war between the world wants to do whatever it wants to do, even if it defies God. And those who are righteous who says, it's not about us, it's about God. All of this is setting the stage to incriminate the righteous. Because the real war is not a war of race, a difference of people who don't look the same. It's about a difference of thought. And so I have to encourage my Christian brothers and sisters, first of all, to warn that we're about to go on a ride like we've never seen before in all of American history. It is going to get harder by the day for, for true Christians. I'm not talking about that fake Christianity that's looking to please everybody and want the world to be fine with Jesus. Jesus said in his word, the world will hate you because it hated me first. And you're not greater than your master. That's in the Bible. So church, I want to say get geared up to go on a ride. But be encouraged to know that we win in the end. It's all a big setup. If you ride with Jesus, you win in the end. Do not let the world dictate to you, for one, what our language should be. And speaking of language, the book that I wrote, The New Age Vernacular, it is available on Amazon. It's available on my website, andrewcrawlerjr.com. And I talk about certain issues, how the world has dictated to the church what its language should be. I guarantee you, everybody watching or either listening, use this language in some way, form, or fashion. Get my book because I expose one of the biggest tricks of the enemy. There was language that we think is Christian language until we study the scriptures to know that's not necessarily true. So not only with that said, what I leave you with today, my brothers and sisters, is don't allow the world and the news 
to dictate the Christian narrative. We never stop loving people. We don't love their sin. We love them. So I have sympathy for people. I don't have sympathy for their sins that they don't want to stop committing. So whether you're black, white, gay, straight, victim or non-victim, don't be lured to overcorrect. Stay within the confines of the lines. So again, Christians, I tell you, the ride that we're about to go on in this nation, stay steadfast, unmovable. Don't get weary and well-doing because our reward is drawing nigh. And God gets more of the glory when we are persecuted for his namesake than when we want to go along with the grain because we don't want anybody to be offended with us. I'm not saying don't fight. I'm saying fight right and righteously. Thank you all so much for being attentive. I pray that something that has been said has been a blessing uh, to you on this day. Again, I thank uh, my brother George for allowing me to come and spend this time with you guys here. Thank you all so much uh, for being listening. I pray that something that has been said has been a blessing to you today. Again, I'm Andrew Crawler. Thank you so much. Yes. Word of prayer. God, we thank you and we praise you right now, Lord God, for this opportunity. I pray that by your spirit, things have gotten done in the earth realm on today. I pray right now, Lord God, that your spirit is already working in the hearts and minds of your people to change things. God, I pray and I speak to that pastor who is only satisfied with standing behind the pulpit sharing words when he needs to be locked. God, what can I do to exemplify your goodness, your grace, your mercy? What can we do to exemplify interracial love? God, I pray that your spirit will prick the hearts of men today those inside of the church and outside of the church. I pray that someone would come to really understand the reality of you and say, Lord, what must I do to be saved? God, anoint the church to exemplify this so that people can say, what is it that make you take care of one another even though you are of different races? And the answer will be, oh, you, the, thing, the person that makes us do this is Jesus Christ. You are open to be a part of our family. God, Strengthen your people with the fortitude like never before for the times ahead and understand that even if it don't feel like it, we win in the end because we're on the winning side. I thank you for your grace and mercy. I pray that the words spoken have been pleasing to you, and if they have, they have been and will be effective to your people. These things we ask in your precious mighty name, God. Amen. Amen. As you might have read, <laughs> as you might have read on the realm, we are starting our Q and A uh, back up here this week with Andrew. Andrew, thank you again. If uh, if you have a question, I've got a list already here. But if you'd like to send one in, uh, the number to text your question is six five one seven zero seven seven three zero eight. So I'm just going to start and see what we can get through, Andrew. Sure. All right, so the first question I want to ask you, um, in what way is Black Lives Matter as an as a, uh, organization being used by uh, or has purposes that are those of Satan? Um, and if you've done your research, if you go, actually within the last couple of weeks, if you go to their website, they actually had a mission statement up that I think now is no longer there. 
that a lot of us saw, and they had their mission statement. First of all, it's headed by two, um, two of three uh, black women who are lesbians. And they actually have said, and even go up and Google some of the interviews that they had and taken it down, that their cause, it just wasn't necessarily a black cause, but it was a LGBT cause. Well, in that, they was talking about how they think that their, that their movement is more spiritual, and they can't, and they don't think that they can ever do their movement, or it's, it's, it's not divorced from the African ancestors. That speaks of a religion. I don't know for those of y'all, please don't go see it, but the new... Um, video that Beyonce put out, it is so very demonic, and it's talking about a religion whereas you are resurrecting the energy from ancestors who you still believe are still alive and well. So most people don't even realize Black Lives Matter is more than just about mar the organization. It's just not about marches. It literally has a spiritual aspect that they admit is not Christian, but it is from the African ancestors. That's just one part, but their goal and their mission, it, they don't have godly principles. As Not only are they trying to push LGBT agenda along with black. Um, when you look at not only the abortion and fatherlessness, there's still a man hatred even within their pores. That, so when you, I would suggest, I don't think you can find it on their website now because I think they took it down because they may have gotten a lot of back, backlash if you go to the Black Lives Matter movement, but they actually had admitted to a lot of these things that I'm telling you in their mission statement. And so they also, if you could look at their videos that they had nationally in their interviews, they was actually saying some things that to a Christian, you understand you're not with Jesus Christ at all. You're, you're, you're diving more in humanism, which now is one of the most widespread religions in, in New Age theology. I hope that. Um, a lot of the things you talked about this morning as far as what white Christians should do requires a personal relationship with those who are not white, not like us. Knowing that our churches, neighborhoods, jobs, etc., can be segregated, especially in the Twin Cities, how would you suggest moving forward in this? One of the things that I suggest is what the example, my brother George, that you already started to set is, first of all, we got to ask ourselves, be self-examining and see, am I intentional or not? And intentionality has nothing to do with a mindset of, this is what I think. It has everything to do with, does my thinking dictate my actions? So I'm saying all that to say, when we purposely go and look for someone who doesn't look like us, when we really not only get out in the streets, here's one thing that we should also do, and George, you've told me that you've already started doing, but let's not do that even as leaders. Let's do that as a church body. How about let's start in this area because there is so lack of uh, the black experience here. Intentionally go to African-American churches and mingle with those congregations. Because normally when we mingle, when we say church are joined together, normally the only people who join is the leaders of both of the churches for a couple of meetings. But the people themselves never join and interact. So one of the things that I would encourage us doing, especially in this area as the body of Christ, is gain more of a regional identity and a regional expression by intentionally saying, we're going to set aside time and effort to go get in the lives of our black brothers and sisters. Get this, even if they're uninviting to it at the time, because it's going to be uncomfortable for everybody. But intentionality, we also have to say, I'm going to endure until there is, a, there is a harmony there. Even if we don't have church services together, let's start out with going out to eat together or come up with some kind of recreation. I know COVID is going on. Some type of recreational stuff where we can at least start at least getting in each other's boat, sitting down and, and, and talking about each other's experience. Mm -hmm. 
How do we as a church strive to maintain unity and love when there are strong disagreements among brothers and sisters on how to pursue righteousness and justice, especially in the case of systemic racism? One of the things that we all need to start out with is the fruits of the Spirit. If we look at the fruits of the Spirit, gentleness, patience, you know, love, all of those things are designed to help us fit together when we are unlovable. So the reason why I say that is that we have to start with the fruits of the Spirit because it's going to take a lot of patience. You're going to have to overlook a lot from people who are going to look to come together because we do have different ideologies and things. Coupled with the fruits of the Spirit, one of the biggest things that we are missing is humility. One of the things that I teach on my seminars is the power of the first lie. Most of us have a heart issue. We like what we have been believing the longest about Scripture, and so we are unwilling to have the humility that says, listen, I'm a lover of the truth, even if the truth not only steps on my toes, but disagree with something that I have been believing for so long. And so what the first thing we all have to have a responsibility to do is be willing to relinquish those things, those lies that because we've heard first and been believing the longest that we think is scripture and say, listen, either you're wrong about it, either I'm wrong or we're both wrong. But how about we be patient enough with each other to research the scriptures to come down exegetically to see what's happening? Because one of the biggest problems is we quote scripture, but we don't but we don't bring exegesis to it. What we do is we quote scripture while we attach our opinions about that scripture to it. And that's what makes us so severed as, as a people. So I start with patience, uh, being able to overlook the flaws that we all have until and also bring humility to the table. That let's talk about what we disagree on and why. And I'm willing, to, I'm willing to be wrong if it can be proven in scripture that I'm wrong or the Holy Spirit says because I want to be more harmonious than holding on to my pet peeves, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can't help but think of James' command to be quick to listen, slow to speak, it is. slow to become anger, angry, and then he goes into, you know, you guys are fighting and quarreling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good word. I've heard the story of Jesus turning over tables in the temple as justification for violent and disruptive protests. It's also argued that peaceful protests are easily ignored, which makes disruption and discomfort necessary. How would you address these arguments? I would address them by saying that, that there again is a perfect example of what I was just talking about. If you want to try to use uh, Jesus turning over the tables as a reason to have unpeaceful protests and destroy property, that lets me know, for one, that's an indication that and one of the biggest dangers that we do is you never want to come to Scripture with an idea that you have first that you want to try to use Scripture to prove. What you want to do is you want to come to Scripture open to research what it says about your idea. And if, it, and if you need to abolish your idea, then do so. But most people come to the Bible already wanting to prove what they have said in their heart already. And that's an indication when we want to use Jesus turning over the tables as to, to destroy property. Because here's one thing we got to understand that. Keep it married to the context. Jesus, first of all, why did Jesus turn over the tables? Because those tables in the place where they were was representing something that the place where they were wasn't designed to do in the kingdom of God. It was literally becoming a den of thieves, for one. So Jesus wasn't turning over the tables for Black Lives Matter. He was turning over the tables because we was misusing 
the ecclesia in the traditional sense about what it was there for and was giving off a bad representation, you know what I'm saying, of that. Not only that, you have to assume that even though he, just because he turned the tables over don't mean he broke them. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have any proof or evidence that Jesus broke or destroyed anything. We do have evidence that he disrupted something, but not that he destroyed. And again, that just goes to people using, I want to show you that the Bible is is advocating that which I already feel, and, and, and again, that's nonsense. And I would add to that that um, if you ask whose house was it that he was causing disruption, uh, I like that. Yes, sir. It's it's his house. It was his house, not somebody else's house. Yeah, break break up your own stuff, and then you'll be following <laughs> Jesus' example. That's right. <laughs> um, what encouraging or troublesome examples of racial reconciliation, individual or on a church level, have you observed? Encouraging or troublesome examples of efforts in reconcil- in racial reconciliation. Um, back in Greensboro, I'm invited to be a part of um, a group of pastors that come together. And one of the things that disturbed me is that, which one of the things that come from the notes that I went over, is that when things start happening, people always ask, well, where's the church in this? Why don't the church do this? Why don't the church do that? And I saw my fellow leaders being lured to react just because the world told them you need to react. And that's not what Christians should do. When Jesus was being Jesus, he was being who he was, and he was consistent. Our problem is, is that sometimes, sometimes we try to make up in reaction what we fail to get in proaction. And so, that, so when I was on that panel, when I was called to be a part of those leaders, they just wanted to move because the society was asking, where is the church? And so what happened was they organized a nice little Christian uh, march downtown, and just like I knew what was going to happen, after that march, guess what happened? The church still didn't do much, but we were satisfied because we, we did an event and had a photo op, so we had something to show the world to see the church is in the fight with you, and that is so surface. You know what I'm saying? If we're really going to be in the fight, it's got to go beyond a march, and it's got to go beyond the appetite of just wanting to react to prove to the world that we are doing something. So I don't bash my brother's for having the heart to do the march. I just say it was too surface to be effective. And so that was one, you know, of the many examples. Then not only that, we don't have patience. Um, not only that, when I'm in a meeting with a lot of my white brothers and sisters who are with black, bro- with black brothers, they are lured into helping them overcorrect because they don't want to appear racist. Hmm. And so what I would tell any Christian to do, never empower evil. Be disciplined enough, have a disciplined enough heart that even if you don't want to say anything, don't empower them and don't agree with anybody who goes overboard in their emotionalism. That's just a couple of yeah. things that I have witnessed that we need to have more wisdom in. Have you seen some good examples? Uh, some good examples that I have seen, and I shout out to uh, my pastor Jeff Miller and my other buddies. There have been some people who have taken the initiative to go beyond the surface to not only help black people but even commune more. So we have what we call like a triad pastors partnership in Greensboro where we are supposed to adamantly uh, link up with a pastor who don't look like us for racial reconciliation relationships. So those efforts have not only been good, but it'll allow us to know one another. Not only that, there's an effort in our area just to spend more time around someone that don't look like you. Hmm. So not only that, we see even Christians uh, mingling with cops and law enforcement. I see even Christian Facebook posts, and that's one thing I admonish everybody to do, not just as a photo op, but bombard social media 
with pictures of engagement of you interacting with people who are different from you that the media calls certain else. Because images are, are important. And so those are some very, very good ones that I encourage people to continue to do. Spend, nothing can do it like spending time with someone that you don't understand. Mm. Get to understand them, and you can help fight their cause more effectively. Mm. This is just a, uh, an encouragement. I really appreciate your word this morning. The insight on the difference of thought was encouraging not only to racial reconciliation, but also to geographical, familial, political, and overcorrection with victims, but I would add perpetrators. I am encouraged that we in the church can come together to address these differences of thought in love so that we are further strengthened. Amen. One last question. To what degree should a, multi, a multi-ethnic church be the goal of a local church? I love that question because over the amount of years we have become infatuated with too much so with the concept of multicultural church. Um, I do believe that no one issue should derail us from the main issue, and that is winning the lost souls for Christ. So I'm not, a, I'm not an advocate of churches need to have a, and here's the thing, when we say multicultural expression, all we mean is can we have other people who don't look like me come to my church service and just sit and watch? It's not engagement, and so I'm not a real, there's a lot of people who are overly exerting too much energy and trying to make the church look like a cultural or a colorful rainbow. I don't think that should be the goal because we also see in Scripture there were churches who were made of, other, of everybody of the same. Not only that, we do see instruction sometimes where, listen, have the wisdom to go back and reach those, go back to your own community and reach those who look like you now that you have been impacted by the gospel. So I'm just saying what we should do is ask God, God, with where I am. Because let's face it. Some, some, some of us, it, we place an unrealistic expectation when we say multicultural church because some churches are in areas where there are no people that look, where the only people are the people that look like you. So how can you be multicultural unless you kidnap from somebody <laughs> and bring them in and, and, you know, and, and tie them to the chairs? So be free from the pressures of the current narrative that says if you're not multicultural, you're not doing the will of the Father. Here's what I say multicultural because multicultural is not how your church service looks. Multicultural is how many cultures, is how many different cultures you engage in your everyday life. And that's one of the things the church need to do. Change your definition and your concept of multicultural. Because I can still be multicultural and not worship with folks who don't look like me as long as I'm engaging people at home, at my job, in the schools, recreationally, that don't look like me. That's truly Christians being multicultural. Thanks again, Andrew. I think we close with a song.